Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be with you as always. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is James, and I serve as the lead pastor here at FEC. It's an honor and a privilege uh, to be with you all today. Um, before we get started, uh, I'd like to pray as well. Um, I think it's ironic that today I'm talking all about food and drink. Um, I haven't had food and drink for the last day and a half. I got food poisoning on Friday, and so I've uh, been stumbling up, stumbling around, and just praying that God would be merciful to let me through this morning. And so if I, uh, you know, collapse or whatever like that, just, uh, you know, do something. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, otherwise, I don't know, where's Levi? Is he even in the room? Um, read the notes. It's just, it's right here. Just stand up here and read it. Let me lay there for a while. I'll be fine. Um, <laughs> but um, if I could pray uh, just for strength to get it through this. Uh, and you pray along with me. I'd much appreciate it. So let's pray again. Uh, Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are our nourishment, that you are the bread of life, uh, that you sustain us, you give us strength. Uh, I pray now that you would grant me strength um, when I have none, and I'll help uh, your word go forward in power and authority, uh, regardless of physical condition <laughs> of the person delivering the word on the stage. Um, be with us today, all of us, and Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that. Um, if you weren't with us last week, uh, we started back in the Gospel of John, this incredible book that we've been together, uh, been in together for a good portion of this year. And today we find ourselves back in John chapter six, where Jesus is having this conversation about eating and, and drinking, about finding ultimate satisfaction. See, one of the universal truths that we have in this world is that we are all designed, we are all hardwired, we are made to hunger. Uh, for those of you who have an infant, or maybe you've had an infant, or maybe you have babysat an infant before, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, we have a biological impulse to desire and need food. And what we learn throughout the scriptures, and particularly from Jesus, is that our physical need and desire is really not any different than our souls. That just as our physical bodies hunger for nourishment that will satisfy us, our souls hunger for nourishment that will give us joy and contentment, things like love and peace and a hope for the future. Uh, we are all made to want that, to long for that, to look for that. And so the question for us today is where are you looking? That's really the ultimate question we're asking today. Where are you looking? And have you found what you're looking for? Because what Jesus says is that without him, we're all actually uh, empty. We're desperate in need. And beyond that, without him, we are actually dying. See, we need something or rather someone that can and will satisfy our deepest longings and our greatest need. And Jesus has come to be that for us. That's what today's all about, to be our ultimate satisfaction. The question is, how are we responding to him? So if you have a Bible with you, I hope you've already turned to John 6, but if you haven't, turn with me there, John chapter 6. If you were here, here with us last week, you remember that in the beginning of this chapter, Jesus was revealing himself to be the greater Moses. He has fed this large group of people miraculously by multiplying uh, a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. 
And then after that, you remember the story, the disciples find themselves on a boat. They're going to the other side on the Sea of Galilee. They're on the water, and it's dark. And they find themselves in the middle of this severe storm. And what happens? Another miracle, right? The second miracle in John 6. They see Jesus walking on the, the water. Excuse me. Again, Jesus is revealing himself to be their provider and sustainer. He's showing himself to be the Lord over the winds and the waves. He's really proving himself to be not just the greater Moses, but he's revealing himself to be the greater I am, to be God in the flesh. It's incredible. Well, after this, uh, the crowd that's been fed, uh, they, as I'm sure the rest of us would do as well, they go looking for Jesus. Uh, They want to be with the one who has satisfied their bellies, right? Who has filled their stomachs. And when they find Jesus, uh, Jesus confronts them. Jesus essentially says to them, I know why you're here. Uh, You don't care about me. You don't care about who I am or what I've come to do. You just care about your next meal. You want your physical needs and desires met. But that's not why I'm here. That's not why I've come to you. See, they were demanding physical food that would feed their cravings. But Jesus is there to offer them a different kind of food. He's come not ultimately to meet physical needs, but to meet spiritual needs. He's come to bring spiritual food, but they don't get it. They can't understand. And so, to further explain himself, Jesus says these profound words to the crowd, starting in verse 35, and this is where we begin our text this week, John 6, 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So to this crowd who are looking for more, they want more bread, physical bread. They want to elevate Jesus to be their king because they believe he's come to provide for them physically the way that God did for the Israelites back in the wilderness in the book of Exodus. To that crowd, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, uh, we know that this is the first of Jesus's I am claims in the book of John. There are six more to go. We'll study those as we work through the book, but this is the first one. And essentially, what Jesus is doing here is giving a two-part response by saying, I'm the bread of life. He's giving a two-part response to their question or their demand for bread. Remember, this group of people has said, give me this everlasting bread. What do we have to do to work for it? And so first, Jesus is saying, in contrast to your desire to have your physical needs met or your physical hunger met, let me tell you about how to satisfy your spiritual hunger Because that's ultimately what you need. And second, Jesus says this because his concern is never for the temporary. Jesus' concern is for the eternal. He's concerned about eternal life and forever satisfaction. And this is a great reminder for those of us who follow Jesus here in this room today or maybe watching online. For those of us who follow him, who belong to Jesus, that the need for more... The desire for ultimate joy and satisfaction has already been met. It's been fulfilled. Your thirst has been quenched if you have received Christ. He is your lasting 
joy, your lasting satisfaction. You should be experiencing that today. Well, in verse 36, Jesus kind of shifts gears a bit. He says, but I have said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Now, with the statement here, Jesus is exposing their hearts, really. He's exposing their unbelief. He is opening the curtain to what they really believe about God, about the gospel, and about who he is and what he's come to do. And it's a bit ironic, isn't it? They have literally seen Jesus provide for them this incredible physical blessing. They've watched him multiply fish and loaves, feeding something like 15, 20, 25,000 people, and yet here they still don't believe in him. What he did was not enough. D.A. Carson uh, put it this way, this crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. Simply put here, wanting the blessings that Jesus provides is not the same thing as believing in him. Some of us can be found guilty of that. Uh, becoming a Christian for what Jesus will offer you <laughs> and, and saying, oh, I want to follow because I, I believe I'm going to get all these blessings, it's not the same as believing in him. It's not the same as a living hope and a living trust in him. And so Jesus continues, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We see here the beginning of Jesus talking about a couple of very important themes that are emphasized in this passage, but that will carry out throughout the book of John. One theme that we'll see, starting here and through John, is God's sovereignty, his control, his supervising over salvation, you might say. And another point of emphasis we see here, theological point here, is assurance, or, or you might say God's surety. Okay, it's a good way to think of it. It's the truth that for those who have come to Christ, to those who have received him, they can be sure about the outcome of their lives. And so first, speaking about sovereignty now, Jesus is teaching here that God, once again, is sovereign over his plan of salvation. Notice what he's saying here. He says that God the Father gives people as gifts to the Son. Uh, that's so incredible to think about. I had to pause multiple times this week just trying to wrap my mind around this truth. That listen, if you are in Christ today, it means that you are actually a gift from the Father to the Son. We, the church, are a gift from the Father to the Son. That's who we are. It's who you are if you belong to Jesus. You are a gift. Listen, you are part of the prize for which Jesus died for. And we see the surety that's attached to this as well, right? Honestly, it's one of the most important text in all of the Bible to go to if you're not sure, if you're struggling with doubt, if you're struggling with God's care and his plan and his purpose for you, uh, if, you're, if you're struggling with his, his love for you, look at what he has promised. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is really good news for us today. It's worth celebrating. It's worth worshiping him over. Your assurance of salvation isn't based on you. It's not based on your strength or the strength of your faith, 
but rather on Jesus, on his power, and on his promise. And so putting this together now, we see this beautiful truth here from Jesus himself, that our Lord is both active and effective in our salvation, in our preservation. It's by his power and through his promise that we are saved, that we persevere to be with him in glory. Or as one pastor put it, this God created the universe from nothing. He conquered death after the cross. He sustains creation by the power of his word, and he will hold on to you. Trust that. Well, Jesus' words of assurance continues, starting in verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you're here today and you're not sure about Christianity, or maybe you've been a follower of Jesus, but you couldn't answer the question, why did Jesus come to the earth? There's your answer. (laughs) It's there. Um, It was to do this, the will of the Father. And what is that will? He, He tells us two things. To not lose anyone that the Father has given him, and to raise up everyone on the last day, all those who believe in him. And so we see here more of the same point, that for those who believe, and therefore those who belong to Jesus, he will not let them go. But not only that, we will be resurrected on the last day. It's our great hope. We will be with him in his presence forever. It's certain. We are assured of that here. And so, to that point, you'd expect the Jews to be celebrating, right? Finally, right? We've been trying to do the law, and now here's this guy saying, we can be assured, we can be confident. Let's celebrate, let's worship him. But instead, the crowd with Jesus is bothered, we are told. They aren't big fans of what Jesus just claimed about who he is, what he's able to do, And what he promises to do. Look at this in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? Whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Bottom line here, the people say, essentially, give us a break, Jesus. We know who you are. We know your story. We know where you've come from. We know who your real parents are. Who do you think you are making these types of claims? You're from a small town, from a humble family. Right? This is crazy, perhaps even blasphemous. Jesus is claiming that he came down from heaven. Right? That's an extremely bold claim and so they grumble it says they complain and if you're familiar at all with the scriptures uh, that should pique your interest (laughs) Um, that should be a major red flag for you for us because what's happening here is that these Jews are actually imitating their forefathers in the exodus who grumbled before and after God sent down manna physical food from heaven for them 
to sustain them, to nourish them. They complained before it happened. They complained and grumbled after it happened. And so here it's more of the same. The human condition continues. God provides. He cares. He loves. This time he even offers himself through his son, Jesus Christ. But they still complain. They have just been given the greatest news in the world, and yet they grumble. Forgive us, God, when we do the same, because we do. And so Jesus answers them back. Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice here, Jesus has a tendency to do this, by the way. We've seen this through John. We're going to always see this through John in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't answer their complaint. He doesn't give time to their complaint. Instead, he rebukes them. He's basically saying, listen, you cannot hear the truth. You cannot learn the truth if you're too busy complaining, if you're too busy criticizing, if you're too busy grumbling amongst yourselves. And then he repeats himself talking about this idea or theme of God's sovereignty. He says, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you, brings you to me. So we are once again seeing here, but this time in an even stronger way, this divine initiative that takes place in salvation. It's God's movement in salvation. Remember, this group of people have asked Jesus. We've just said this before. I'll say it again. They've asked Jesus, What needs to be done to get the bread that you offer? We want it. Give it to us always, they said. They want to know what work should be done to achieve the bread that he has. And Jesus here is saying, you cannot obtain the bread that I offer. You cannot work for the life that I give, the salvation that I offer to you. You can't get it by yourself. You can't get it through your work. It's not based on your deeds. That's not possible. Right? You, you can't earn or accomplish or secure your own salvation, Jesus is saying. Why? Why? Because salvation is fundamentally based on the work of God. More specifically, the work of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Now, you have to hear me on this. Um, there's some people here who really like theology, okay, or you're interested in theology, and we're talking about God's sovereignty and salvation, and so uh, you're, you're antsy in your seat, okay? Um, so hear me, this is important. What this doesn't mean is that you and I don't have a responsibility in salvation. We do. God draws, but you still need to listen You still need to learn. You still need to respond. And I know this is challenging, right? It's a a topic that's gone through much debate over the last 2,500 years, okay, by the way. And trust me, I too have spent countless hours, particularly in college, past midnight, right, arguing, debating with my roommates over this topic the responsibility of salvation. What comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Is it me or is it God? How does this work, right? Especially if you went to a Christian college, it's the big thing when you're 20. You're gonna figure out all the world's problems in theology, right? That was my story too. 
But you know, um, I'm, a, I'm a long ways removed from there. Time keeps going. <laughs> uh, 15 years removed from that. And you know, the older I've gotten, the more I've been in pastoral ministry dealing with this topic, the more my advice has become this. And here's my advice to you today, this morning, when it comes to this topic. Um, learn to live with attention, period. And prioritize believing and obeying Jesus. Put that first. That's the most important thing here. And, and, and I believe it's, it's what Jesus would have us do. He would prioritize just saying, believe in the Son and obey me, period. <laughs> Hear me, our responsibility isn't to secure our own salvation. We know that. But it's also not our responsibility to unravel the mystery of the gospel. Our responsibility is to believe it and then to follow and obey Jesus as Lord. Amen? So Jesus says that those who go to him are who the Father draws to him, this mystery of the gospel. And then he explains how the Father does this, actually. And he's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 54 here. He says this, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Really interesting text, an important one. So how does the Father draw people to salvation? How does he draw men and women to be saved? We are told here, he teaches them. People learn the truth. They learn the gospel, and then they come to faith. Essentially, Jesus is saying, people come to know God. People come to know Christ by his word. Which is why, then, it's so important for us here that we commit ourselves to the teaching of God's word, to the understanding of God's word, so that people can learn the gospel, be drawn to Christ, and come to faith. It's a great reminder for us that when we share the gospel, when we teach others about Jesus, we are actually doing God's will. I get that question at least a couple times a year. Pastor James, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will? What should I do? Make disciples. <laughs> Teach other people the things that Jesus taught us. Period. That's God's will. Wherever that is, anywhere in the world, whatever your career is, that's what you're called to do. This is God's will. We are participating in his divine plan to call people out of darkness into life. Or you might say, we are, when we are doing God's will, when we share the gospel, when we teach other people about Jesus, we are serving up to people the only meal that will truly satisfy. And why can Jesus speak on the will of God? What gives him the right to do, though, do so? What gives him the authority to say these things about where to find life and how to find life? Well, he tells us, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, then he says, he, speaking of himself, has seen the Father. So here, Jesus is authoritatively claiming as only he can that he has this unique and intimate relationship with God the Father, that he has seen him, that he was sent by him, and that he has been given this divine plan in this supernatural mission, Jesus and the Father have a 
fundamentally unique, special, abiding relationship. It's an intimacy that our human relationships here on earth can only reflect in very limited and imperfect ways. And it's within that all-knowing, trusting relationship that the Father, we are told, sends his one and only Son. He sent his Son on a mission to rescue his people, these people that are a gift from God. And practically, what this means for us is that our knowledge of God, our relationship with God, how we see him, how we know him, how we understand Jesus, his will and his ways, will only come through Jesus. The Son who is sent by the Father, who knows the Father, it's through believing in him that we know and see the Father. Well, from there, Jesus sort of puts his stamp on all this. And if you're keeping count, it's the third time that we see this language truly, truly in John 6. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So he is being as emphatic as he can here. Listen to me, he's saying. Hear this. Remember, he says, the way to eternal life is through me. It's, it's by believing in me. So, so this, again, it, it's a don't miss this, essentially. Don't miss this. This is a sure promise from Jesus. It's a certain guarantee that if you believe that Jesus is the bread of life, come down from heaven. If you genuinely receive him as that savior, you will have eternal life. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus here again repeats himself. You're seeing him repeat himself over and over and over again in this text, which is why we keep repeating this same point over and over again, because if Jesus repeated it, it's worth it for me to repeat it. Um, He says again, I am the bread of life. I'm the true manna that your fathers ate in the wilderness. He's essentially saying that bread that your forefathers ate in the wilderness was only a foreshadow of what's to come. And here I am as the fulfillment of that bread. You see, when the Jews ate the manna in the wilderness, we know their physical needs were met. Surely, it was God's grace. It was a good thing. God was so gracious to them, despite their grumbling. But hear this. It's important note. Jesus says here, they still died. (laughs) Think about that for a second. These people literally ate bread that rained down from heaven, and yet they still died. And Jesus is saying, you will die too without a relationship with me. See, you can do Whole30, paleo, the new one's a carnivore diet, you can go vegan, whatever. There's no physical diet plan. There's no food that can satisfy you eternally or give you forever life. Right? You might be, Lord willing, you might be healthy here and now, but even that is temporary. Jesus said, I alone am the living bread. 
And if you eat that bread and only that bread, you will live. What good news we have today. It's so good that Jesus once again repeats himself. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, don't miss this, is my flesh. The bread that I give is my flesh, he says. Going back to John chapter 1, we read there many months ago that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And now we see this flesh, this person, this Jesus, is saying that he will give up his life to save the world. That he will give up his body, the bread, as a sacrifice for us and our sins on the cross. The Jews there that day had another chance to respond with gladness. But instead of believing, the crowd there moves from grumbling to arguing amongst themselves, actually. They can't accept Jesus as God or the sacrificial Savior. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, it says, saying this, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? (laughs) So, they either couldn't understand this metaphor, or they did understand and they couldn't stomach the truth. So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, there's the words again, emphatic, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So as if, as if eating Jesus' flesh wasn't enough, now Jesus doubles down and he says, oh, it's not just that, you have to drink my blood too. And we have to understand, in our context, this is weird and gross, right? In their context, this is offensive. This is, this is repulsive to a Jewish person. See, we have to know it, it is forbidden to drink blood or eat any animal flesh with blood still in it if you're a Jew. The law of Moses strictly forbids this. I think it's in Leviticus chapter 17. You cannot do this. Otherwise, you will be deemed unclean, be taken outside the camp for an extended period of time until like ceremonial things are done so that you can come back in. It's extremely offensive. But Jesus here pushes the boundaries to, as a Jew to Jews to make a point. He's being offensive to get their attention. And if you're here today and you've never heard this before, maybe you're... New to the whole Christianity thing, and then you've never seen this text. Maybe you're a little freaked out as well. Wait a minute. I heard the whole thing like Jesus loves me, believe in him, have this great community. I didn't know Christianity was about this. Like eating his flesh and drinking blood. When does that happen? Right? I haven't seen that yet. Right? It's a pretty shocking statement from Jesus for sure. But you know... I was thinking about this, you know, sometimes, sometimes I think it actually does us uh, not just a little bit of good, it does us a lot of bit of good, 
to be shocked by the truth of the gospel. And honestly, you know, the gospel is extremely offensive. It's extremely offensive. You know, one of, one of I, I believe, one of my roles here as someone who's, you know, teaching up here often is, is to offend you by, by the gospel, but nothing else. I hope if you're offended here today, it's because of the gospel. The gospel is uncomfortable. It's made to, to make you uncomfortable. I once had a professor say, you know, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And he asked me once, he said, when it comes to discipleship, it's really simple. He said to me, James, when does, when does the cross become comfortable? He said that to me. I thought, when? He said, when you put it down. The life of following Jesus is uncomfortable. The gospel is offensive. You know, we need to be known as people uh, not just for what we're for, but also for what we're against, especially in the culture or climate that we find ourselves in. This, the gospel is meant to get our attention, and Jesus has their attention here. Maybe he has your attention now. He says, if you want to live forever, eat my flesh and drink my blood. So what does he mean? What does he mean by that? Well, okay, to ease you a little bit, this is not silence of the lambs, okay? It's not about cannibalism. We don't do that here. <laughs> Jesus wasn't doing that back then. The language is surely shocking, but actually this is a very simple metaphor. He's referring to his death on the cross. That's what this is about. He's saying, if you don't receive me, if you don't receive the one who will, who will give his body and, and shed his blood on the cross in your place to atone for your sins, if you refuse to believe in him, in this Jesus, if you reject him, you will have no life. And so, yes, eating and drinking his flesh and blood is a very graphic way of saying it. But again, it's meant to grab our attention because this is a matter of life and death. The gospel is a matter of life and death. If you believe today, you will be raised up on the last day. You will be resurrected with the saints in glory. If you eat, if you eat today, you will be satisfied and live forever. And then we land the plane here for today. Jesus sums up his teaching by saying this, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. He keeps repeating himself, right? Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. What is Jesus saying as he closes out this section of teaching? He's saying, he's saying, I am the real food, I'm the real drink that produces real life. That's the simple truth today. And if you partake of Christ, if you accept Jesus, if you accept him and his words, if you receive him as Lord and Savior, you will be brought into this beautiful, abiding, loving relationship with him. Jesus is the true bread that came down from heaven, sent by the Father. 
The, the manna that the Father sent down in the Exodus was great, but Jesus is greater. Moses was great, but Jesus is far greater. Only the food that he provides satisfies throughout all eternity. But, but, you must receive him today. You must. You must place a living hope and a living trust in him to be saved. The beauty of the gospel is that when you and I realize that we are empty, when we realize that we are, we are hungry, when we go to Jesus poor and, and desperate, he promises to become our bread. He promises to become our life. And he lives with us and he lives in us. This is the glory of the gospel. That fallen, broken people can be restored. Made one with Christ Jesus. So today as we close, know this. God the Father calls and he draws people to the Son. He is sovereign over his plan of salvation. And in that plan, Jesus promises that for those who believe that he will never lose us, he will never let us go. There is assurance today in Jesus. You will be raised with him. So if you find yourself here today and you don't know Jesus, for those of you who are here and you have not yet truly believed, here's my encouragement. More than that, it's a plea with you. The food of this world, the things of this world may sustain you and please you for a short time. They might even sustain you for 80 years, 100 years. But the bread of this world will not give you eternal life. It cannot. It wasn't intended to. Only Jesus can do that. He alone is the bread of eternal life. And the truth is, I don't know this morning. I can't know. Only you and God know if he is calling you today, if he's drawing you to himself. But I'm going to assume that he is. I'm going to assume that he is drawing you today. So I'll say this simply but urgently. Believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. Embrace the truths of the gospel. Feed your hunger. Quench your thirst. Receive Christ and live forever. And for those of us here today, and I know it's a good majority of us who do know Jesus, I urge you to simply remember this, that when God seems distant from you and the brokenness of this world comes crashing down on you, when you find yourself in a valley season of life, maybe you feel crushed by the weight of this world, you feel helpless and hopeless, maybe you're even in a place where you are angry at God, remember these promises from the mouth of Jesus himself, I will receive you. I will never let you go. I won't lose you. I will raise you up. I will give you life. The bottom line today is this. Simple, simple truth today. Jesus is the bread of heaven who gives and guarantees. He's the bread of heaven who gives and guarantees eternal life to those who believe in him. So church family, Let's eat, let's drink, and let's live. Amen? Let me pray for you.